thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. So well presented. Take your Bible now and turn with me to the book of Galatians. We continue our consideration of this epistle from the pen of Paul the Apostle and from the heart of the Holy Spirit to us. It's just as relevant today as it was in the day when it was first written. Rather than read the entire 10 verses and then come back and look at it in detail, I'm just going to work my way through it. By way of introduction, I want to take us back over 500 years. I know you're excited about that. And we're going to put ourselves in what we know as Germany. The main figure in what I'm having to say is a man by the name of Martin Luther. Luther was an Augustinian monk. He was brilliant. He was driven. It was said that sometimes before he became a follower, a true follower of Jesus, was born again, that he would spend hours and hours on the floor of his cell, stripped naked, confessing his sin, trying to pay, make atonement for his sin. His father confessor was approached one time and was asked about Luther, and he said, Luther wears me out. He asks again and again for absolution. I think we're finished, but it continues and it continues. This was the man who, in some people's estimation, was the greatest man to usher in to the modern era. When he went to the church in the city in which he ministered, he had come to know Christ all that time when he worried so much and fretted so much, living in constant fear of death because he knew he had no assurance of salvation, because he had not done enough good works. His penance was a pittance, and it was not able to get him into heaven. He came to Christ, and on that day, in October of 1517, he nailed his 95 theses to the door of that church. Little did he know that he was going to be used to start a revolution. It was called the Reformation. And let me make it plain. Martin Luther had no idea how impactful that mo moment was. And he had no idea of starting a new church or tearing the Roman church down. That was not his motion and his movement. He wanted to bring to light the inconsistencies of the church because the church had long, long abandoned the Word of God as the basis for knowing God and knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ because they had let the traditions of men come to the surface and be dominant in the light of the people who were under the jurisdiction of the Roman church. 
Four years passed. He was called on the carpet by the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire who had been told by Pope Leo X, who was a very powerful man, probably more powerful in reality in terms of his influence on people than the emperor himself was. But he had approached the emperor and told what Luther had said and how Luther had railed against the selling of indulgences. And you may know what that meant. There would be people like the one who had the district where Luther ministered in that area of Germany, as we call it, in Wittenberg. His name was Tetzel. And he was given the responsibility to get money. There have always been people who stand in places like mine who have a real influence on people giving money, and many times it's not a good influence. It's manipulation. Basically, Tetzel was quite the influencer. He would speak of the fires of hell. He would speak of the descendants of those who had deceased and had gone to purgatory. And he would appeal to them, if you will give this much money, you will perhaps contribute to your family being let out of purgatory. And people, peasants primarily, would give money to get their families out of jeopardy with God. Luther knew there was no such thing as purgatory. Luther knew the gospel. Remember, he had been a priest for so long. He was not simply an Augustinian monk. He was a professor. He had a doctorate in theology. He taught other priests who aspired to be in a position like Luther was in to study the Bible from the original language, if you will. And it was in his preparation for his lectures to his students. On the book of Romans, Paul's magnum opus, where he was stricken by one verse in the first chapter. It captured him as it never had before. He had read it and read it and read it. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit opened his eyes. And it was a simple quotation taken from the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. And it simply says, the just shall live by faith. The word just is a synonym for the righteous. The righteous live by faith. He realized his life had been dominated with the false teaching that the righteous is one who never knows he's righteous or she knows she's righteous because there's not enough good things done for the Lord through that person's life. I'll never forget in astonishment in ignorance, I might add. When I was reading Time magazine, probably at least 40 years ago, the sitting Pope, I believe it was Pope Paul, he wrote something that was put in that magazine, that secular magazine of all things. And he said, no one knows until the moment of death whether that person is going to heaven or purgatory, or God forbid, hell. Because no one can be sure that he or she has done enough good works for the church and for God to be ushered in. 
Luther knew that. Luther lived that. And what a day of glory that was for him when he was set free by the Word of God, the truth. And he understood for the first time that we're saved by grace through faith and not of works, lest anyone should boast. This is the beginning of the Reformation. And this is reminiscent of what Paul dealt with when he moved from being a Pharisee of Pharisees, a man who could tell you the exact spot on any scroll of any one of the writings of Moses where a particular nuance of one of the commandments would be found. He had it memorized backwards and forwards. He was a zealot par excellence. We know he tried to squash the sect of followers of Jesus Christ. He didn't know who he was messing with, though, did he? Jesus met him on the road to Damascus as he had orders from the high priest Annas to go and arrest people who were of Abraham's descent and put them into jail. And by his own description of his behavior after he came to Christ, he said, I was a violent aggressor. I was there at the place of Stephen's stoning holding his garments, probably egging on those who were throwing stones to kill this great man of God, Stephen. But he was radically changed, wasn't he? It was he who is largely responsible from a human perspective of our understanding of the gospel. The other apostles, their gospel was the gospel of Jesus too. But the Apostle Paul was selected by God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit to be the one who really, really settled the issue about what it takes to be saved. It takes the work of God, not our work. In fact, as hard as we may try to make ourselves right with God, we make a step backwards because we can't do it. I am so pleased for the opportunity to talk to new believers in Christ and see them blossom. Their hearts are changed. They really don't know what's happened. They know that they pled with Jesus for forgiveness and something happened to them. They were made right with God. And as we go and explore the Scripture in some detail... Those folks who were lost without hope are people who have been found by the Son of Man who came to seek and to save that which is lost. You know that. You would never have sought Christ on your own. If you know Him, you didn't find Him. He found you. You can take no credit whatsoever for it. Read your Bible. Read the Gospel. Listen to the voice of the Spirit of God as He speaks to us. Oh, I'm so grateful, aren't you, that God saw fit to save me. I could not do anything about it. I was not a good candidate. I was a sinner, just like everybody else in this room. But praise God that He sent Jesus 
to find us. The Apostle Paul experienced that. And he was one, someone has said that the bane of his existence, I had to look up the word bane. I knew what it was spelled. I read it, B-A-N-E. I wanted to know what's a good word that we can substitute for bane because the only time I ever see that is in some piece of literature that I don't necessarily want to read. But the word means the curse. The curse of the Apostle Paul after he met Jesus and after he grew. He had 14 years to grow in Christ. Three of the years, the first three of the 14, were lived probably in virtual isolation in what was known as Arabia. And some, as I mentioned last week, equate that with the three years that Jesus gave to the apostles who walked with Him as members of the twelve, the initial apostles. But what we know is the Apostle Paul, he was one when he launched out in his work who was plagued, cursed by false teachers. You probably are aware of the fact. I hope you are if you're not. Keep this in mind. That virtually every book in the New Testament was written to counter false teaching. And there are two broad categories. One gets in trouble whenever he or she tries to sort of compact things. But there are two basic categories of false teaching that masquerades as the truth. Now, pause just a moment. Among other things that are said about the devil is he masquerades as an angel of light. The false teachers in question in this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at were such people. They were so sure of themselves. They were so, so forceful. They were people who were convincing. What we know is those people were agents of Satan. False teachers are agents of the devil. And Paul knew these two basic categories. I'm going to go with the one he's not dealing with here and then look at the one he is dealing with in the broader context. Here's the one that he was not dealing with. It's a, a phrase or a word that goes antinomianism. <clears throat> we know what anti means, right? You're against it. And the word nomian, the, the part of that word, nomian comes from the New Testament word namas, which means law, against the law. In other words, there were false teachers who said, look, there's therefore now no con condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ paid it all. And why not live it up? Because He's paid for all your sins. There were people who peddled that kind of nonsense and lured people in, these false teachers. Perhaps you've been in some way impressed by such false teaching. And you've gotten real tired of it. You've kind of followed that way of thinking. I'm saved. I don't have to read my word. I don't have to get right with God and confess my sins and all that because I'm perfectly saved. And you would be right. If you know Him, He has wiped the slate clean. And as He says, just by way of example, there are many places we could go. But in Hebrews chapter 10, He says... Their sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no moss, no more. And that's true. 
But you know, the few times I've gotten off track spiritually, I get off track every time I sin. I sin every day. I'm sorry. It's true. But when I've kind of gotten farther afield than normal, man, I feel empty. I maybe enjoy sinning. Do you know what the Bible says in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 about sin? Sin is pleasant for a season. Pleasant for a while. So we who know Christ are eaten up when we take advantage of the grace of God. We have bought the antinomian false teachers line of lies. But the one that he's dealing with here is a different kind. It is a kind of false teaching which adds to the gospel. It's the kind of false teaching that says you've got to keep on working to keep your salvation secure. There are certain steps which you have to take in order to secure your salvation. This is what we're dealing with in the form of these false teachers called the Judaizers. And we read from Acts 15, and they said, it's not enough to put your trust in Christ. You've got to add something to it. If you're a male, you have to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses in order to be saved. Nonsense. Because that contradicts the Bible's teaching on what constitutes salvation. We are to be men and women who humbly come to the Lord. There's only one way in. That's humble. And once in, we're in. And we're designed to grow and help other people do the same, just like the Apostle Paul understood. Let's look at this passage of Scripture in the remaining moments we have, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 2. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along also. Paul had been to Jerusalem one time before. It had been 11 years before he wrote about this experience. 11 years separated this writing of the letter to Galatians and his first trip. How long did he stay? We saw last week. 15 days. He only had personal time to any degree with Cephas, which is Peter's Aramaic name, the name that he was given when he was born. And there was not a lot of time for him to absorb the gospel of Peter to be influenced by it. That's why he mentions this. But he comes back now, 14 years after he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, because he's wanting to get some clarity from the apostles in the mother of the Christian faith geographically, Jerusalem, the apostles who were there still, and also elders in the church. He wanted to hear what they had to say in the counsel that they would give. So he brought with him Barnabas, who like Paul, was a Jew and an observant Jew before he received Christ, and perhaps even to a large degree going forward. And they took Titus along with him. Titus was a Gentile 
through and through. He was somebody who had not one drop of Abraham's blood in his veins. He had come to know Jesus as his Lord and as a Savior. And so we see that he brings him as exhibit A of a person who has been radically changed by the work of the Spirit of God and been saved by grace through faith and that not of himself. Look at verse 2. And it was because of a revelation that I went up. Why did Paul go to Jerusalem? The same reason he speaks about how he received his gospel earlier in the book of Galatians. It was by revelation. It was not through a man or a group of people. It was not through anything he read. Jesus came to him. Probably the first example of this is when he was on the road to Damascus and the Lord began to reveal the gospel to the Apostle Paul. There had to be quite a bit of washing of the brain of Paul. He got a new spirit. He was dead in his spirit. He got a new spirit. He was a new man. But it took time for him to really study the scriptures to the degree that he came to the conclusion of what his gospel was, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It wasn't the purview only of Paul. But we are grateful, I am, for Paul being saved and going to the Gentiles because my descent is from Gentiles. My grandmother's maiden name was Solomon, Lily Solomon. I was so excited when I got 23 in me, I thought, I'm going to have some Jewish blood in there. I thought for sure. And I could hardly wait when I got my report back. My hands were kind of shaking a little bit. And I wanted to see... Opened up and surprise, surprise, 83% Anglo Saxon or something like that. Either from Ireland or Scotland or England. I said, I paid $100 for that. That is ridiculous. I'm a Gentile and I'm so grateful for the Lord, including me among those whom He's called out of darkness into His marvelous light. And through no favor of mine for Him, or no inherent purity, He saved me. Thank God. He saved my grandmother too, even though she wasn't a Solomon in the sense of descended from the Solomon of the Bible. But look at this passage of Scripture. In verse 2, I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation. And we know who they are. He's going to name a few of them a little later in this passage. We'll wait for that. For fear that I might be running or had run in vain. There's probably a person present today, a good person, very upstanding person, a person who is serious about knowing the truth, who falls into the category of someone who is depending on some work to get himself or herself into heaven. And you're wondering, am I running in vain? Well, if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, the person and His work, you are running in vain. And there's only one step between where you are and where you could be in eternity and that is to relinquish control of your life. Say, here I am, Lord. 
I'm tired of trying to make it right with you. I give my life to you. I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. But I give my life to you, Lord. Paul was concerned not about his ultimate destiny. That had been settled in his own mind. But he was concerned that he might not have the full picture. So he wanted to sit down with the apostles and talk to them and hear their gospel. Let them, first of all, hear his and see if it was something that was not simply compatible with their gospel, but it's the same thing. It's identical, not simply compatible. That's what we know about the Apostle Paul. Let's go ahead and read through this passage. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. After this panel of apostles and elders, we read about them in Acts 15, had finished their time with the Apostle Paul, if they had thought there was some flaw in his gospel, they would have called on for the circumcision of this Gentile, Titus. But he, remember, he, Titus is exhibit A that Paul and Barnabas present. Look at verse 4. But it was because of the false brothers who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. Remember what Jesus says on at least two occasions. When he opened the scroll on the first Sabbath of his public ministry, he was given the scroll. He made an exposition of it. And as he read it, it said about the Messiah, that the Messiah would come to set the captives free. Do you recall when he came to set you free? What a day that was. A day of great, sweet relief. I remember it like it was yesterday. It's been over 60 years ago when I received Jesus Christ. I was a boy, but I knew I was a sinner and I knew I needed a Savior and I knew that Christ died for me. And I was the only... All I could do is cry out to the Lord and ask Jesus to forgive me. And lo and behold, just like that, I knew that Christ had come to indwell me. Praise God. For that, And we know as we look at this passage of Scripture that not only does the Bible say that Jesus came to set the captives free, but He says in John 8, if you abide in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And Paul was, I mean, he was probably seething at the very idea that these interlopers these false teachers, these agents of the devil would come and feast on new believers or give them the false gospel that they were so clever and persuasive in presenting and bring them into bondage again, having been set free. Look at verse 5. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. There was a history that Paul had, and when he confronted these false teachers, I mean, he was one who was not going to budge because he was convinced of who Jesus was, what he did for us. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. Look at verse 6. 
but from those who are of high reputation. Here he again goes back to talk about the apostles, those elders and apostles with whom he had met. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. He's not dissing them. He's just making the clear, objective statement. God is no respecter of persons. Do you know that? There's no one in this room who is viewed as being better than anyone else. And there's no one in this room outside of Jesus Christ living in some and not in others who is someone whom God puts below everybody. No one better, no one lower. We're all one in Christ Jesus our Lord, saved by the grace of God. Verse but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour. That's what I just finished reading. Let's go down to six. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. Well, those who were of reputation contribute nothing to me. It's not that he couldn't learn from other people. He's just saying he realized he had not run in vain. He mentions that earlier. And he was right with the Lord. And the gospel of the apostles of Christ the Twelve was the same gospel that he was preaching primarily to the Gentiles. This passage says, verse 7, On the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. Now, let's go back a moment quickly. When Peter was rendering his judgment on what the Gentile believers should do, not get circumcised, not do things to add to what Christ had done. It was amazing, wasn't it? Peter quoted Scripture from the Old Testament as to how people other than descendants of Abraham would be saved by the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. This is the Gospel. It's so encouraging to see it. Verse 8, for he, that would be God, who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. Paul preached to Jews when he and his team would go into a new place under the direction of the Holy Spirit to establish a church there. What was the first place they would go to? The synagogue. Why? because there would be people who were prepared by the Holy Spirit to receive the Messiah. And when they'd hear the gospel, boom, they were born again and they'd given their lives to Christ. Even as it was true with Peter, that Peter was sent to Cornelius, the great centurion, and introduced him to Jesus and learned that God loves the Gentiles too, whom he is earmarked. We're one. Do you know that? The book of Galatians says, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. The word Greek is interchangeable for Gentile. We're not the Gentiles over here in an inferior heaven and the Jews over here who know Jesus in a superior heaven. We're all in the same heaven because we're all children of God. That's what the scripture says. And that's good news for all of us who know Jesus. Verse 9, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James, Cephas, and John, that would be James, 
the brother of Jesus, the half-brother, James, the other one, there were two apostles, James, James the less and John, James the son of Zebedee, the brother of John the son of Zebedee. He'd already been beheaded by now for his association with Christ. Cephas, we've already said, is Peter, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. All's well that ends well, isn't it? There probably was some apprehension, I would imagine, in Paul as he goes before this auspicious group of people, the people who had lived with Jesus in the body three years, wondering what would happen. But he was dead set on setting the record straight for himself and for anyone else who might be out of sync. And it was about grace. I just want to read one, or one verse that in 15 of Acts. This is beautiful. It's all beautiful. But verse 11, this is what Peter said. We believe. Who would the we be? The apostles and elders. We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Who are they also? Gentiles who've come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Let's look at verse 9 and 10 as we wind this up. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John were reputed to be pillars, etc. And then it says in verse 10, they only asked us, that would be the council, the apostles and elders, to remember the poor, the very thing also I was eager to do. The Bible talks about Jesus in His humanity. And in the book of Acts, we've looked at Acts, but not in this passage in Acts that we looked at. But the Scripture says that Jesus was a man. The writer of Acts is Luke. He knew Jesus was God, become a man. But he wanted his hearers to know that He was a human being too. And He went about doing good. When we receive Jesus, have you received Jesus? Where does He live when you receive Jesus? He lives in you and He lives in me by the Spirit. That's a miracle, isn't it? It's true. He lives in us. And if He went about doing good on earth when He was here the first time, He's got millions of people who He indwells and He wants to live His life through you and me. Good works don't save you. But we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which the Lord prepared in advance for us to do. And by the way, I've already quoted these verses, but the two verses right before this, by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, lest any man or woman should boast. We have been created in Christ to be men and women who, like Paul, are drawn to help people within and without the church, beginning with the family of God, and ministering to people in a practical way, a concrete way as we would call it. I can't think of anything more concrete than relating to people in a spiritual realm. We think it's so ethereal and out there. The spiritual realm is real for us. And God wants us to be 
not simply spiritual, but a spirituality that takes seriously our privilege to minister to others and in so doing, minister to none other than Jesus Himself. I want to close with this emphasis. One of my favorite verses from the time I was probably 24, 25 years old is Ephesians 4.2. And it says, depending on the translation, yes, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, capital S, in the bond of peace. What happened at the council of the apostles with Paul in Rome was one of those efforts. It, it was a struggle to a degree. There were people who were on the fringes trying to persuade people who were in the decision-making group to rethink their decision. But they were convinced because it was, this, was the Word of God. We are to take seriously anything the Bible says about us in relating to the Lord. Not the least of which is we're to make every effort to preserve the unity of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who makes us unified for the glory of God. But there are times when we as individuals and as a church must take heed to what Jesus said and what Paul reiterated in his own way. Beware of false teachers. They come outfitted in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are what? Devouring wolves. And we're not to go on some sort of witch hunt. We're just to know the Word of God. And when you hear it, if you read your Word, if the Spirit of God indwells you, you'll know there's something wrong when you hear certain teaching. You'll know whether it's from the Lord. Whole Gospel, just part of it. And we need not be on a mission to fix people up and set them straight. We just need to follow Jesus Christ and He'll bring people into our lives whom we can be used to minister to the grace of God. Would you bow your head? Thank you, Father, for the Apostle Paul saving him. Thank you for saving Martin Luther, Lord. Much, much like the Apostle Paul and we ask now, Lord, that You would work in each of our hearts. Personalize this prayer if you're in, the, in hearing of my prayer. Personalize it. Lord, I want to be sure I'm just yielded to You, trusting in You. And I would dare to ask You, Lord, please use me to honor You, to glorify You, and to help others to come to know You and grow in You. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The elders will be here to receive any of you who might want to come and for prayer, questions about what I was talking about today. We'd be glad to spend time with you if you so choose.